Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 102, New Lives. As stability started to appear in the Soviet Union during the early 20s, conditions finally became amicable to a semblance of normality. And the topic I want to cover today is just what were the people actually living there expecting from the new state that they lived in? As I've stressed before, the new government advertised from word go a new way of living, a new way of thinking. As you might have picked up on during this series, the promise of a new world oftentimes fell short. The Bolshevik government was established in a nation already racked by war and hunger, and the ensuing civil war pushed the normal citizens further into the abyss. In the brief window of quasi-democratic expression, the Bolsheviks did not enjoy anywhere close to the majority of popular support, so they were unlikely champions for the broad masses. Millions never reconciled themselves to the new world and either died fighting the Reds or fled abroad to start a new life elsewhere. But for the vast majority who stayed and accepted the new status quo, they began to adjust to their revolutionary circumstances. This was the first society aimed at building communism. Now, the correct nomenclature is that the Soviet Union was a socialist state committed to building communism, but I'm just going to refer to it as communist for convenience's sake. The Soviets never actually achieved communism, but as in so many things, it was their ambition that was the important thing. The communists wanted new citizens to inhabit their state, inspired by the multitude of works predating World War I calling for communal societies where the needs of the group were paramount where the overall populace acted as a single organism. This was, of course, a rejection of the bourgeois ambition of personal advancement and aggrandizement. And coming out of the Civil War, the people were ready to go along with the ambition, at least in the cities. The peasantry, as discussed last week, was still mistrustful of what Moscow was selling, both literally and figuratively. But in the cities, the middle part of the 20s represented a time of experimentation, a time of possibility. It helped that the NEP, in addition to signaling an economic retreat from state oversight, also signaled a loosening of cultural controls as well, allowing for freer expression and ways of living than what had come before or after. The Communist Party as an organization, although hugely enthusiastic about nudging the population towards a more communal way of life, found that its own powers to influence society were badly limited by the devastation wrought by the near decade of war and the resulting shortfall in resources and properly trained personnel. Broadly speaking, the biggest change experienced in society by the mid-1920s was the effective destruction of the class system. True, you could get shown favoritism by being a party member or having connections, but these relationships in no way created the gross inequalities of what had come before. For the self-motivated, there was a lot out there. Education was more open. Jobs were more open. Normal people had way better chances of getting jobs in government. And in general, one's background became far less important. Somebody from the sticks could leave their village, get an education, and then apply for a desk job. It may not have been easy for the person in question to make those kinds of leaps because of their own inclinations or personal ambitions, but such things were now possible. As the 20s wore on, it's interesting to note that inequalities began to emerge again, though. The NEP had encouraged the growth of private enterprises, which, while not the huge industrial ventures of the late Tsarist period, still produced profitable and active businesses. This, in turn, created that very thin band of individual entrepreneurs I covered last week who accumulated capital and therefore became well-positioned to buy luxury goods. 
This demand was met by other ventures who were able to acquire and then sell such things, and before you knew it, there was a market again. Again, the state controlled the vital industries, and the peasantry had their own special dispensation to sell their produce freely after paying their tax in kind, but on the street level in the cities, it really seemed as though the revolution was in retreat. The newly enriched entered into all the old habits of their predecessors and drove around town in expensive cars, eating caviar and drinking fancy liquor. It drove those average folks who had fought in the revolution and civil war absolutely nuts. And I'll be up front with you guys. I have no idea what this new proto-bourgeois was thinking, being as ostentatious as they were with their wealth in a state that had proven unafraid to purge their type in the past. And even with the NEP in effect, popular culture as pushed by the state just didn't encourage such consumption. They would prove useful though in creating enemies to be crushed when it came time for the NEP to be rolled back, and would provide energy to the populace that they were being truly revolutionary once again as they had enemies to fight. And one success the revolution managed to notch on everyday life was in how people interacted with each other. Comrade became a manner of address, and people started speaking in terms of struggles and mobilizations when it came to everyday life. Which, to be fair, was also a mark of how deep the scars of the Civil War went. But it did create a populace cognizant that the community they were building was also one that was under some constant threat. But it wasn't all violence and living in constant anxiety, though. Take the case of one Alexander Bogdanov. He was an early utopian sci-fi author who just so happened to be in deep with leftist politics. A little discussed factoid was that he co-founded the Bolsheviks alongside Lenin way, way back in 1903, and for an ever-so-brief moment was considered his rival. That didn't pan out, obviously, and he tried to make a third faction within the old RSDLP, the predecessor party to the communists. I didn't mention him before because his opposition didn't really go anywhere, and he really didn't stand a chance as a rival to Lenin. By the time of the October Revolution, he was out of the party and doing his own thing, which turned out to be setting up a social movement called the Proletkult, whose aim was to spread culture and learning and critical thought to the working masses. It also is kind of a cool name. This group would get hundreds of thousands of people involved, including tens of thousands of artists and thinkers. And while they were the most notable, there were a multitude of other study societies in the early years of the revolution that the state also made use of in order to elevate the masses and instill a sense of culture in them, because they certainly didn't have the resources or energy to do it themselves at that time. Proletkult eventually did run afoul of the Commissariat of Enlightenment as Bogdanov tried to steer it away from state control, probably because he wanted to get away from Lenin, but that led it to being folded into the state apparatus and eventually dissolved. Notably, it was Lenin's wife, Krupskaya, who actually pushed that move for tighter controls forward, likely because such groups would come under her oversight. And once the Civil War was won, it came time for the state to turn its attentions to culture, whereas before it had relied on those smaller organizations working on its behalf. Lenin, at the end of 1919, declared that illiteracy was to be liquidated as just another enemy of the state. The official state line was a little less grandiose than Bogdanov's vision, but still involved delivering on the promise of raising the proletariat out of the darkness of not having an education, which made illiteracy the big target. While the old Zemsvos had begun the process of tackling that, most of the nation still couldn't read or write 
and out of all the challenges facing the communists, this was actually one they succeeded admirably at. The Red Army was incidentally the first place to get mandatory literacy classes, seeing as how soldiers really needed that ability. And when everybody demobilized, they took the reading bug back with them to their hometowns and villages. Miniature libraries set up in huts were established as reading areas, or if there weren't enough resources, some modest corner in a public building was converted to the purpose. And while the political and scientific tracks didn't prove as popular as the party hoped for, people were at least engaged and the small institutions were a hit. By 1926, half the population was literate, compared to 25% in the Tsarist days. That still left a ways to go, and the big problem was coming from the countryside. Throughout the 20s, expanding literacy among the peasants proved to be a seemingly intractable problem. It would be left to the much more intensive state interventions of the 30s to see literacy rates rising to 75% by 1937. But those who learned became reliable readers, with one of the biggest requests coming from the smaller areas being books of all kinds as people suddenly had interest to be satisfied. A whole new world of knowledge had been exposed to them, and the people proved eager to learn, which was a major advancement when keeping in mind the terrible conditions this society was emerging from, and how excited these people were that they could engage with ideas and news they had only previously heard about at best. One downside of this focused drive towards basic education was the effect it had on higher education. With so many people getting crash course educations, Many thousands decided that, hey, they were bettering themselves through education already. Why not take the next step and get a degree? There was also an influx of women whose doors were suddenly opened by the revolution. The problem was that there really weren't the resources for higher education, especially with the increased numbers seen during the 1920s of the student body. Pre-war, the university system in Russia supported over 135,000 students, and by 1928, that number had climbed to 233,000. But there wasn't a corresponding increase in funding, so those students were not getting the best attention from an overburdened faculty. To paint a broad picture, you had an overtaxed university system that lacked in both facilities to teach and also to house their charges, and a student body that had grown enormously and itself might not be composed of the best candidates which was kind of a two-sided thing. On one hand, you did want to train up your most promising talent, but on the other hand, the only way that you were going to get people from more modest backgrounds into the university system was by consciously accepting that there would be issues and embracing the true end goal of an enlightened proletariat. The crash course educations many had received were certainly helpful, but did not reach the level one expected to attend college. At various points, over half the student body had to repeat their courses on account of failing. The students were also scrutinized for class and political affiliation, with an easing of student numbers being carried out by rejecting those from non-proletarian backgrounds or those who were supporters of Bolshevik leaders like Trotsky, who fell out of favor during the 20s. While basic education was being delivered to the broad masses, the failings of higher education weighed on the communist leadership and would haunt them when state projects became more ambitious and properly trained and motivated specialists were direly needed. And as people became better equipped to process new ideas, there too arose exciting new developments at the cutting edge of culture. Once the wars had died down, many of the USSR's thinkers turned towards envisioning what the future utopia would look like under communism. 
If that idea sounds a little too grounded in wishful thinking and propaganda, keep in mind this was early on, when the communist endeavor was still fresh, and the question of what the new society was to look like was far from answered. The communists were early embracers of the cinema, although during the Civil War years, their cinematic undertakings were more of the newsreel and propaganda variety. And with government resources being what they were, there wasn't a lot of money available to push beyond that. But thanks to the liberalization of the NEP, the film industry kind of jump-started itself as theaters using older movies and foreign films proved popular, which resulted in independent productions becoming viable, albeit under the watchful eye of the party. During the 20s, real growth in the field was made by Soviet artists. These were the days where the star of director Sergei Eisenstein really took off, and by 1925 he had created his masterpiece, Battleship Potemkin. That movie, about the 1905 mutiny by the sailors of that titular battleship that I touched on back in episode 81, was a critical smash. It was also the second in his trilogy of films alongside Strike and October that explicitly glorified the revolutionary activity of the preceding quarter century. Battleship Potemkin was so well received that it achieved global recognition and for the past century has been ranked among the greatest films ever made. But even then, there was debate over the merits of a film like that. Much of the party's leadership preferred strictly informative films, pure documentaries. They were put off by the operatic presentation of Eisenstein's movies and other more populous forms of entertainment. But during the 1920s, the party had far bigger problems to worry about, and its reach was much more limited than it would later be. And more importantly, it turned out that Stalin was all in favor of producing films that could touch the imaginations of the masses, which meant that as the decade came to a close and his own long period of rule got underway, the party's interest in film evolved. He had his own very specific ideas of what content was acceptable, but at least it didn't needle directors about shots or editing. But more troubling than flashy shots was the deluge of American movies being imported. Over three-quarters of the movies showing in the Soviet Union during the 20s originated from there, and they usually did by far the best business. That shouldn't be entirely surprising. It was for the same reasons as to why U.S. cinema overwhelmed local markets for generations. Production budgets there were higher, the stories produced were intended to be sold to the largest possible audience, and for the ones showing up in Russia, distributors could pick out the surefire hits which was also a tendency in music as well. The loosening of society during the NEP also liberalized tastes, with foreign music being important suddenly, and especially jazz from the U.S. being popular with the urban Nepmen. And in December 1921, the Subnarkum allowed for private publishing houses to be established, which meant that within two years, a modern music industry was in full swing within the USSR. This didn't go unnoticed, and there was tension again between the parts of society that embraced the NEP and those who stuck to a more revolutionary vision, as musical tastes became political statements. It wasn't even modern music per se that came under attack, but rather those who listened to it. In the cities, there were attempts to take up music from the previous era and repurpose it for a communist audience. In many cases, the music was retained, but the words of songs updated or slightly tweaked which, to be fair, was almost exactly what happened with a lot of Soviet music after the USSR fell. As influential as education and the arts were to the new society being built, it was in the sphere of the family that the Soviets made their biggest breaks with the past. The communists made a big ado before 1917 about elevating women to an equal playing field as men, 
which from the start was a radical break with a patriarchal past. Then they won up themselves by seeking to overhaul the very conception of family, which didn't go as far in practice, but did show the directions that were planned. Just a year after the October Revolution, laws were enacted that solidified the equal standing of women in society, as well as secularizing marriage while normalizing divorce in the bargain. It had been technically legal before, but you had to plead your case before the disinterested church. Women also gained the right to retain property in their name when entering into marriage, as well as a right to their own income. The idea was to give women independent existences outside the household. This also tied into the push against old family life as it encouraged women to find careers and leave the home. The state would take up the responsibility of daycare while the parents worked. Women in the workplace were encouraged to form the same associations as male workers did, with collective mess halls, for example, providing an environment for bonds outside the household to be built up. Campaigns against sexual harassment, physical abuse, and gender discrimination in general were organized by the Women's Department of the Communist Party. In Muslim areas of the country, similar campaigns were launched against polygamy, arranged marriages, and the separation of women in society. Similar to the reforms of marriage being an attack on the Eastern Orthodox Church's powers, these campaigns had the attended side effect of also attacking the Islamic establishment. This provoked a backlash in Central Asia against the changes, resulting in hundreds of women being murdered in retaliation. And while the communists temporarily retreated on some of those issues, once Stalin was fully in charge, he did launch a counterattack against religious authorities there, although this was a far more extensive counterattack than simply advancing women's rights. For families in general, there had been the notion before the revolution among some that the entire institution would be dissolved, as it was seen as a mechanism that served only to allow the transmission of wealth and property between generations, and whose time was at an end. The state would handle the raising of children, and specialized workers would maintain homes. Then the Civil War happened, and all that went out the window. Families certainly disintegrated during the conflict, and the state was left to manage the care of millions of children. As it turned out, the communists really weren't ready to go that additional step of tearing the whole thing down. And let's face it, people in general weren't ready to just abandon a fundamental human institution like the family right then and there. The changes to marriage and divorce laws were very present, though, in the day-to-day -day lives of women. And oddly enough, the relaxed divorce laws proved unpopular in many quarters. It's very true that women in a bad situation benefited greatly from it, but for a lot of other women, the relaxed divorce laws meant that men found it easier to skip out on them and their families. While it's true the state did initially provide some financial assistance to ease the burden of being a single mother, it wasn't enough to fix the problem that was developing. And on account of men being the main casualties of the two wars over the past decade, there was a gender imbalance where females outnumbered the men, which meant an unscrupulous guy could bounce from partner to partner while women would struggle to find someone to settle down with. This resulted in 1926 to the divorce laws being tweaked to where men would have to pay their own alimony instead of the state. This put a crimp in the style of the more promiscuous menfolk, as once they had a family, they were bound to them at least in a financial capacity. This all being said, divorces were still a relatively uncommon occurrence, despite the USSR having the highest rate in the world. Once the chaos of the war years had passed, family life settled down for the vast majority of the nation. The freedom granted by women's equality and the changes to social mores also opened up discussions on sex. 
With striking rapidity for a society so traditional just scant years previously, people's sex lives, especially among the youth, became greatly relaxed. Having casual sexual partners without relationship conditions became common, and frank conversations on the topic of sex came out into the open. Supporters of this trend advocated that active sex lives liberated people and again challenged the stifling mores of the past. Little problem this ran into. The old Bolsheviks might have been party animals, but not that kind of party. Having spent lives on the run, they knew a thing or two about dislocated relationships. But they were also dedicated revolutionaries where relationships, both casual and committed, were of secondary importance to smashing capitalism. So they kind of saw this little sexual revolution brewing as a waste of energy. Lenin, ever the simultaneous sports nut and nerd both, advocated for intense physical exercise, followed by rigorous theory reading as a means to burn excess energy as the preferred alternative to chasing casual sexual partners. Because of course he did. This emphasis on physical and mental fitness, though, would be in keeping with existing policy vis-a-vis -vis organizing the youth, as exhibited by the Communist Union of Youth, or, as it's better known, the Komsomol. This was a nationwide social organization for the teens of the Soviet Union, established back in November 1918. Its purpose was to help provide a political education and prepare one to be a model proletarian. During the Civil War, it acted almost as a paramilitary unit, with its members helping with labor-related military activities such as digging trenches and building barricades, or providing logistical help here and there. As manpower shortages flared up, the teens of the Komsomol were oftentimes called up and absorbed into the Red Army proper to carry on the fight. Once the fighting died down, the organization shifted its focus to include providing recreational opportunities like putting on stage shows, sporting events, camping, and the like. Inoffensive teen stuff. The organization, though, faced certain challenges to overcome. The biggest of which was that it was almost entirely an urban group. The youth of the countryside had little access to it. There was also the problem of morale. The youth of the Civil War were spurned to action by wild promises of building a fresh new world as a collective. It was something that even those from a more modest social background could partake in, and it gave a sense of purpose to those who might have otherwise been denied one. Then the NEP came around and those grand dreams were dashed. Many of the youngsters growing up in the Civil War days would have been fired by promises of bold action. So imagine the disappointment when it turned out they were going to delay full communism and instead allow healthy doses of economic liberalization. They would have had to witness the Nepmen drive around the streets in their fancy cars to a glitzy restaurant or club and know that what they were being fed in the group meetings wasn't actually happening anytime soon. Plus, the Civil War years encouraged self-sacrifice, daring, and heroism. Peacetime and the NEP emphasized education and being able to economically contribute. Important qualities to the survival of the nation, but hardly anything to fire the imagination. The doldrums of the 20s would leave the majority of the young communists in the Komsomol itching to actually do something big. And when Stalin proclaimed a new class struggle at the outset of his rule, the youth rallied to his cause, eager for a new war to win, especially one where they got to drop the hated Nepmen down a peg. And it's worthwhile to note that the Komsomol was an organization for the teens of the nation, not the kids. The corresponding organization for children was called the Pioneers. And yes, this was the equivalent to the Scouts. Uh, that international organization was banned on account of its associations with the imperialistic West. 
The Pioneers were a bit more easy-breezy at the time when compared to the Komsomol, but would be put to more proactive use once, you guessed it, Stalin came to power. For the 20s overall, the youth was very much an unstable source of support for the state. The Komsomol only reached 1.5 million members in 1926 and represented only 5% of the nation's teens. The Pioneers' own 2 million members in its own age demographic told a similar story. Everywhere there was political apathy or hostility, mostly due to material conditions continuing to be poor, all the while there was that public backsliding on the grand promises. And also, it may have been asking a lot for those two organizations to churn out fully formed communists out of the youth of the country. The attempts by the Communist Party during the 20s to shake up society were mired in conflicting intentions, a lack of resources, and a state still coming to grips with how to go about its self-assigned mission. The apparatus of communist control was still undergoing growing pains, and it was not yet the confident power that it would day grow into. But hey, this meant that for once in the Soviet Union, trends and events were being driven from below and not as part of some grand plan cooked up in Moscow. And if that makes it sound like I'm just setting up pins to be knocked down over when Moscow comes a-calling, very good, that's exactly what I'm doing. Because the incomplete or conflicting drives of the 20s would be replaced after 1928 with the manic intensity of Stalin's five-year plans. And I'm not saying that's going to be an improvement. In many cases, things were going to get a whole lot worse for people. But it also provided a settlement of sorts as to the nature of the state and what they were building towards. The half-measures would be replaced with directives so certain and unmovable that people were crushed trying to execute them. The easy days would be gone, but there would instead be grim certainty as the days of experimentation came to a close. Which sounds menacing as all hell, and it should, but it also gave a clear purpose and goals to be worked towards which we'll be picking back up with next season. But for next week, I'm going to take a look at an organization that became the boogeyman for anti-communists the world over, the Comintern. With the USSR acting as a home base, like-minded parties across the globe came together to create an alliance to spread the message of revolution. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.